Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today on this, episode number one of the Bible Mystery Podcast, we are setting out to solve the greatest mystery of all time. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? So what is the show all about? This is the Bible Mystery Podcast. Our focus is on the Bible. My particular view as a pastor of 20-something years, a Bible professor, and even a writer is this. The Bible is supremely interesting. It's not boring, and it's a shame that so many preachers and teachers, myself included, have bored people over the year because the deeper you dig, the more you realize how fascinating of a book the Bible really is. Now, this show started its life in May of 2019 as the Bible Questions podcast, and it was actually going pretty well. But here in July of 2019, I decided to do uh, a bit of a reboot, and the reboot was significant enough that I realized it was probably a good idea to go ahead and completely start the show over. But some of the episodes from the Bible Questions podcast I think are still good. They're still fresh. They're only a couple of months old, for heaven's sake. So I'm going to recut them and use them here to kind of launch the Bible Mystery podcast. And we got about eight episodes deep into that show, and you're going to see or hear all of those episodes upcoming in releases from the Bible Mystery podcast. The most important episode I recorded of that show was also episode number one, and it was dealing with the greatest mystery of all, the question of whether or not Jesus factually, historically rose from the dead. And I got to tell you, I fully believe he did, and I think there's some great reasons to believe that. And in this episode of the show, like I said, originally recorded May of 2019, I discuss what I believe is the primary number one reason to rationally, factually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I would like to invite you to check out a book I wrote on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. It's called Easter Fact or Fiction. Easter Fact or Fiction. It is available on Amazon as well as several other places in paperback and Kindle form. It's uh, of the six books I've written, it's probably my favorite. And it lists 20 reasons why I think rational people can believe that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. This podcast is basically going to in-depth cover one of those reasons, but Easter Fact or Fiction has a lot more than that. Also, I want to invite you to check out our website where you can subscribe to the show. which would be awesome, but you can also find tons of show notes, very long articles at BibleMysteryPod.com. Once again, BibleMysteryPod.com. All right, thank you for listening. Here we go. This is the number one reason why to believe Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on Easter Sunday all those years ago. So today's question, what is the single most persuasive reason to believe that Jesus Christ historically and genuinely rose from the dead? And I'm going to open up with uh, one of my favorite quotes here. It's a Tim Keller quote. And that quote is says this, the resurrection 
of Jesus is a major historical problem, says Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Church in New York City. Most modern historians make the philosophical assumption that miracles simply cannot happen, and that makes the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disbelieve the resurrection, you now have the difficulty of explaining how the Christian church got started at all. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry at all about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Keller goes on to say that's how the first hearers felt who heard reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant that we can't live our lives anymore the way we want to. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything, not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. That's not completely true, says Keller. The resurrection also puts a burden of proof on those who don't believe. It is not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. That's a great quote and it brings us to the great question. What is the single most persuasive reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead? Now, me personally, I believe it's a historical fact. I believe it really happened in history. When I was in college, I went through a long period of unbelief, despite the fact that I was right, raised in the church. And the thing that brought me back was not so much a religious epiphany or an experience. It was a deep, concerted really scholarly study of the resurrection. I came to the conclusion that there are genuinely real historical reasons to believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose from the dead. So I'm going to give you a few candidates for, for what might be the most persuasive reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to pick one as the one that I think is most persuasive to me, and maybe you can uh, send in your suggestion of what is most persuasive to you. We got about four or five candidates for the single most persuasive reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. The first one is the fact that in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, women are the primary first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal in that? Well, in the first century, as you might have heard, the testimony of women was not generally considered as reliable or as important as the testimony of men. For instance, you have the Roman historian Josephus uh, who said this, Let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and the boldness of their sex. The non-biblical Jewish Mishnah also suggested not taking the testimony of women because they said, the Mishnah said, that the menstrual cycles of women made them unreliable. Now, I don't agree with that. I think it's sexist, of course. But 
that is the atmosphere that the first century had. And the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all indicate that Mary Magdalene, or Mary Maudlin if you're British, uh, that Mary Magdalene and the other women were the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus is very strange to say the least if you take the assumption that the apostles somehow fabricated the story of Jesus rising from the dead, or if it was some sort of a legend or something along those lines. The fact of the matter is, if you're coming up with a myth, if you're trying to make a big deal out of something, you in the first century, if you're trying to convince people, uh, a hoax people, anything like that, or, or even just simply amplify what happened, you're not going to have females as your first and primary witnesses of the miracle you're trying to convince people to believe. Because in the first century, females were considered less reliable. Once again, don't send emails and letters. I don't agree with that. That's just the atmosphere then. And I find it a fairly convincing reason to believe in the biblical accounts. It's uh, some historical uh, historians call it the principle of embarrassment. When you find things in the Bible or in, in any historical record that is embarrassing to the writer, that seems to make it slightly more reliable. In the first century, it might have been, in a sexist way, embarrassing to the writers of the gospel that their primary first witnesses of the resurrection Jesus resurrected Jesus was female. But that's how all four Gospels listed that it happens. Now, does that prove Jesus rose from the dead? No, it doesn't. But it does seem to make the biblical account more reliable. All right, here's proof number two. I call this the Lithuanian argument. If you think about the current country of Lithuania, the vast majority of most Americans know almost nothing about it. They don't know. The capital of Lithuania is Vilnius. They probably couldn't name a single country that bordered Lithuania. And for the record, there's three. Latvia, Poland, and Belarus are the, the countries that border um, Lithuania. And I don't even know if I'm saying the pronunciation Vilnius. I don't even know if that's the proper pronunciation. I don't know much about Lithuania myself. I'm sure it's a beautiful, lovely place. But like most Americans, I know next to nothing about it. But I will say this. Lithuania in 2019 is very much analogous in its comparison to the United States of America as Israel would have been in comparison to the Roman Empire in the first century. Lithuania very roughly corresponds to about the same size difference between United States of America and Lithuania as the Roman Empire and the country of Israel in the first century. And in that first century, a Jesus of Nazareth rose to prominence and within about 300 years he had basically shook the entire Roman Empire with his presence despite the fact that Jesus never left Israel. Think about it this way, how remarkable would it be for a teacher who never produced any art or paintings or anything like that to have risen up in Lithuania in the 1700s. And now the majority of Americans consider that teacher from Lithuania to be God. 
that would be absurd, strange, incredible that such a thing could happen. And yet that's precisely analogously what happened in Rome, the Roman Empire, within two, three hundred years after the death of Jesus. Jesus had become one of the dominant key historical figures in the entire Roman Empire within about 300 years of his death, even though he came from a country that was analogous in importance to the Roman Empire as Lithuania is important to us. How do you explain such a thing? And that people have to have a rational theory to explain how Christianity spread so far and so wide in such a short amount of time without military power or financing or anything like that. I believe the resurrection of Jesus is a very plausible answer for how Christendom, Christianity, began to dominate the Roman Empire within 300 years of the death of Jesus. And given the size and relative importance of Israel compared to the Roman Empire at the time, which again is analogous to the relative size and importance of Lithuania to the United States in 2019, you have to come up with some sort of plausible reason to explain the fiery, deep, rapid spread of Christianity and and I believe the resurrection is a great explanation for that. Once again, it doesn't prove Jesus rose from the dead, but it gives you a plausible reason to believe it. Another candidate for the most believable or the most plausible reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead is what I call the Sabbath switcheroo. The fact that up until the death of Jesus, almost all of the people in the borders of Israel worshipped and went to church, essentially, went to synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Isaiah 5, 12 through 14 puts it this way. If you keep from desecrating the Sabbath, from doing whatever you want on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way, seeking your own pleasure or talking too much, then you will delight yourself in the Lord and I will make you ride over the heights of the land and let you enjoy the heritage of your father Jacob for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And yet after the death of Jesus, for a lot of people in the borders of Israel, things changed. The day of worship went from being on Saturday, the Sabbath, to what is now called the Lord's Day or Sunday. In fact, you read in Acts 20 verse 7, Luke writes, On the first day of the week we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he extended his message until midnight. There you have Jewish believers meeting on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16 2 similarly says, On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So in Jewish Judaism, they met on the Sabbath day, but the Jews who followed Jesus in the first century began to meet on the first day, the Lord's day, on Sunday. And that is a massive, monumental historical change for those people. By the time it got to be the 150s, a man named Justin Martyr, who was an early Christian, wrote this about the early church assembly. He said this, on the day which is called Sunday, we have a common assembly of all who live in the cities or in the outlying districts. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. 
Then, when the reader is finished, the president of the assembly verbally admonishes and invites all to imitate such examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer our prayers. And, as we said before, after we finish our prayers, bread and wine and water are presented. He who presides likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability, and the people express their approval by saying amen. The Eucharistic elements are distributed and consumed by those present, and to those who are absent, they are sent through the deacons. The wealthy, if they wish, contribute whatever they desire, and the collection is placed in the custody of the president. With it, he helps the orphans and widows, those who are needy because of sickness or any other reason, and the captives and strangers in our midst. In short, he takes care of all those in need. Sunday, indeed, is the day on which we hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, transforming the darkness and matter, created the world, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, arose from the dead on the same day. For they crucified him on the day before that of Saturn, and on the day after, which is Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them the things which we have passed on to you also for consideration. So there you see that the early church marked a monumental change in the way that many, many, many Jewish people worshipped and and sought the Lord. There was a big change there. What explains that obvious historical shift? I think the answer is very plausibly the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't prove Jesus rose from the dead, but I think it does demonstrate something monumental, historically important happened to cause such a shift in worship. All right, the next candidate for the most plausible reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead is what I call the uncracked conspiracy. If skeptics are right and Jesus did not factually rise from the dead, then what you have here is the greatest conspiracy theory essentially in world history. That is, you have a group of people that conspired together to lie to everyone about the resurrection of Jesus. The only problem with this conspiracy theory is that there's no evidence that's ever surfaced despite centuries of looking that there was such a conspiracy. Now, I'll be honest with you, some conspiracy theories are fairly plausible to me. For instance, I think it's very plausible that the government somehow played a role in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We know as a historical fact that a very high-ranking FBI official sent Martin Luther King Jr. a letter shortly before his death that told Mr. Uh, Pastor King that the FBI had collected quite a bit of evidence of wrongdoing on Martin Luther King Jr.'s part and urged him to commit suicide. And yes, that's historical fact. That's not a conspiracy theory at all. You can look up that letter if you want to. Uh, it, it addresses Martin Luther King Jr. simply as King and urges him, 
I think inf- you infer that it urges him to kill himself. That's um, That says to me that it's very plausible that James Earl Ray was not merely acting on his own behalf when he killed Martin Luther King Jr. I can't prove it, but I think it's a plausible conspiracy theory. Let me give you another one that's beyond a shadow of a doubt true. In my home state of Alabama, in the 20th century, the United States government performed a experiment, if you can call it that, a horrible sort of thing, on a group of hundreds, uh, around 400 black men who had syphilis. And in that experiment, which I believe is called the Tuskegee experiment, the government gave some men real medicine to treat syphilis, and the government gave some of the men a placebo that they knew would not help out with syphilis at all. And basically what the government wanted to do is study the effects of syphilis on the body while lying to people that they were actually giving them medicine. People died from that. People were scarred for life from that. And that's not a conspiracy theory. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment is a fact and it came out later because people started to talk about it. Speaking of the government, did you know that during Prohibition in 1926 and 27 that the government would add poison, deadly chemicals to alcohol uh, so that anybody who tried to drink alcohol not meant for human consumption would die? I understand that somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand people died in New York City from 1926 to 1927 because they drank this poisoned, not meant for human uh, use alcohol. And obviously that sort of thing came about later on. Did you know that in the 1950s and the 1960s that government made polio vaccines were distributed that that contained a virus called Simeon Virus 40? Now some people say that that virus causes cancer. I find Find the the evidence for that somewhat lacking. The bottom line is we don't know. And hey, I'm not an anti-vaxxer in any way, shape, or form. I'm just telling you that that accidentally happened. Maybe there was some efforts to suppress it, but eventually it came out. Were you aware that Congress once had a Russian spy among its members? This again, it's not merely McCarthyism. Well before Joseph McCarthy was even looking into communists, uh, a, a man named Samuel Dickstein, who uh, was a Democrat from New York City, was on the payroll of the KGB, and he was part of Congress. Now, none of those things are conspiracy theories. That is all considered accepted history. And the reason we know about it is because, not during the time, but later, people cracked. They came out and confessed, or it was unearthed what happened. And now, all of that is commonly accepted history. But the realm of the resurrection of Jesus, there's no such crack. There's no such evidence that's ever been 
discovered that reveals that there was a conspiracy amongst the early church or the apostles to hide the body of Jesus or something along those lines. Yes, that was an accusation that was made. Uh, it's actually recorded in the Bible that the Jewish officials accused the early church of stealing the body of Jesus, but no evidence of such a thing has ever been found in any sort of writing or whatever. And you have to ask the question, if this really was a conspiracy, why did the majority of the 12 disciples lose their lives for that conspiracy? It doesn't make any sense. I think that's a plausible reason to believe the resurrection. Two more. Number five, the stigma of the crucifixion. We don't stop to think about it in 2019, how horrible the crucifixion is. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of, in the eyes of the government, Jesus was a criminal convicted of a capital crime and executed by the state. Augustine, writing in the 400, says this, The shameful embarrassment of Jesus' crucifixion and the horror of his death are now surmounted as light banishes darkness at the dawn of this new day, the first of the new era of salvation. Now the focus there is what Augustine says about crucifixion. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. Can you name a single person historically other than Jesus that was crucified? You might know of the church tradition that Peter was crucified, and indeed there's some pretty good evidence that he was. But by and large, we sort of think Jesus was one of the few people crucified by the Romans. But the fact of the matter is thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions were crucified in the early centuries, not just by the Romans, but by many other people. In fact, uh, around 40 years after the death of Jesus, there was a Roman general named Titus that launched a military campaign against the city of Jerusalem. He crucified somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of four to 500 people a day, according to the Roman historian Josephus. Crucifixion was incredibly common in the early century. Not only was it common, it was incredibly cruel. It was embarrassing. It was agony-filled and a horrible way to go. You've probably seen pictures of Jesus on the cross, and almost always he's clothed. But the fact of the matter is, the Romans crucified people naked. So Jesus would have been exposed on the cross, naked, bleeding, dying horribly. And if the idea of worshiping somebody that died in that way is, it's weird. It's astounding. It's astounding that the king of the universe would stoop so low as to die in such a way for the sins of his people. But it's astounding that people having seen him suffer in such a way would worship him unless he genuinely, really, triumphantly came back from death. Not just merely from passing out on the cross and then he sort of recovered later and everybody was like, well, he's still limping around. He's still bleeding and everything, but he did survive it. Think about this. In the 1940s, there was a man named Willie Francis, and this is a tragic, tragic tale. Willie Francis was an African-American teenager. He was convicted of murder in Louisiana in 1945 
when he was 15 years old. Supposedly, he murdered somebody despite the fact that there was no evidence of such a murder and despite the fact that the gun used to kill the victim actually belonged to a deputy sheriff that had threatened to kill the victim in the past. You sort of see where this is going. I can't prove who did the murder here, but it certainly doesn't look like Willie Francis did. Nevertheless, Willie Francis was convicted of the crime. He was electrocuted in 1946, May of 1946. However, he did not die despite the fact that he was electrocuted in the electric chair. A drunk, incompetent guard set everything up improperly, and Willie Francis managed to survive the execution. Unfortunately, the story doesn't have a good ending because the very next year, one year later, the Supreme Court ruled inexplicably that it was not cruel and unusual punishment to re-execute a teenager, and so they executed him. This time it worked, May of 1947. Now, aside from the multiple disgusting racial injustices of that situation, I do need to tell you historically that nobody worshipped Willie Francis during the year after his first execution failed. Nor have people in history worshipped men like John Babacombe Lee or Joseph Samuel or other people like that who survived execution attempts. Now, why did they not worship them? Because the very idea is beyond absurd. Think about that. Think about worshiping somebody executed by the state as a criminal. It makes no sense whatsoever. Take away the resurrection and it is unexplainably strange to worship Jesus of Nazareth. Sure, he was a great teacher. Socrates also was a great teacher and he was also unjustly killed, but nobody is going to roll up to First Socrates Baptist Church uh, one Sunday next spring and celebrate Easter, are they? There's no way. Now, if you want a demonstration of how odd it is, how strange it is that Christians worship Jesus, maybe try one day wearing a flashy gold electric chair necklace sometimes. And when somebody asks you why you're wearing an electric chair necklace, tell them that you worship an executed criminal. The look on their face will tell you all you need to know about how first century Jews would have responded to claims about Jesus if he didn't literally and truly rise from the dead. One more reason to believe. And I saved what I might think is the best one for last. So as far as I'm concerned, this one argument here might be the single best argument or the single best reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And, and saying that, let me recognize, I, I wrote a book, it's called Easter Fact or Fiction. It has 20 reasons to believe. Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe that the best way to convincingly show the resurrection is by all of the reasons together. But if I had to just, just choose one right now, I would use what I call the appearance of Jesus argument. Because it begins with a scientifically un, undisputable fact that Jesus is the single most famous person that ever lived. The fact of Jesus being the most famous person that ever lived is virtually indisputable by people. Um, 
You can prove it in a variety of different statistical scientific ways, including the number of times a particular name appears in literature over the centuries, that sort of thing. And the question is, how did Jesus become so famous and prominent? And so the appearance of Jesus argument argues that Jesus was unimpressive in his appearance, in his bearing, and in his nationality. The second century anti-Christian philosopher named Celsus wrote this about Jesus. He said he was ugly and small. Tertullian, an uh, early church father, says that Jesus' outward form was despised. According to the apocryphal book, The Acts of Peter, Jesus was small and ugly. According to early church father Irenaeus, he was weak and inglorious. According to a man named Andrew of Crete, who lived very early, Jesus was bent or even crooked, possibly with a back sort of disorder. An early apocryphal book called the Acts of John, Jesus is described as bald-headed and small. Now, none of that is actual photographic evidence of how Jesus looked, and I don't necessarily take all of those books as the gospel truth, but taken as a whole, we get the idea that the appearance of Jesus was less than ideal. And that is a biblical concept. Isaiah 53, 2, looking forward to the Messiah, prophesies this about him. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Not only did Jesus not look great, he apparently was not tall. And that's a bit of a uh, an exaggeration. According to a letter sent to Emperor Theophilus by a group of bishops, Jesus was approximately three cubits tall, which was also the opinion of Ephraim Cyrus, who was an early church father. God took human form, he says, and appeared in the form of three human L's tall. He came down to us small of stature. Now, how tall is three cubits? Well, on the short end, about four feet six. On the upper end, about five feet one. In other words, Jesus was roughly five feet tall. He was apparently unattractive. He stayed his entire life in a country the size of Rhode Island, roughly. You can fit seven Israels in the state of Alabama, approximately. This is a small country. Jesus never produced art. He wasn't impressive to look at. He was not tall. He never wrote a book. He did not have money. He did not have rich, famous followers. And yet, he is the most famous person, inarguably, in the history of the world. How does such a thing happen? Now, somebody would say, well, he was just a great teacher. And you know what? I do think he was a great teacher. But the combined number of words that we have left over from the teaching of Jesus is not a lot. Consider this, the book of Matthew, roughly 18,000 words. The book of Mark, roughly 11,000 words. The book of Luke, 19,000 words. And the book of John, 15,000 words. And not all of those words are directly the teachings of Jesus. But if you put all of those books together, 
that comes out to about 65,000 words testifying to Jesus. That sounds like a lot, but I've written six books. One of the books I've written, The Bible and Racism, which is not actually super long, has 66,000 words in it. So you're try if you're a skeptic, you're trying to tell me that Jesus became the most famous person in the history of the world simply because he was a good teacher, and yet we have less than one book's worth of teaching from him. I say hogwash to that. I say the fact that Jesus is the single most famous person in the history of the world demonstrates that something remarkable happened in his life and I believe the resurrection qualifies as that remarkable thing now again I realize that doesn't beyond a shadow of a doubt prove that Jesus rose from the dead but it is something that would make a skeptical scientifically focused atheist think because it's quantifiable and if you're going to say Jesus didn't rise from the dead you have to come up with an alternate reason for his fame for the spread of the early church for the use of the women as the first witnesses for the power of the early church for the transformation of the disciples for the change over of the day of worship in many Israelite Jews from Saturday to Sunday for the spread of the church, etc., etc., etc. I submit that the historical record shows in multiple ways that something incredible, something unprecedented, something amazing and mind blowing happened in 33 AD. And I believe that thing was the resurrection. So, what about you? What do you think is the single most convincing reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead? I'd love to hear from you. So hit us up at speakpipe.com slash BQP with your answer, or you can simply go to our website, biblequestionspodcast.com. And I do want to close with a great passage of scripture. This is from the resurrection chapter of the Bible. It is 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over five hundred brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, Paul writes, he also appeared to me. That is the good news, that Jesus died for the sins of all who would look to him in faith, believing that his sacrifice was for them. Not only did he die for our sins, but he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Not a metaphorical resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection, a physical one demonstrated by the fact that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. In fact, Paul says most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. I believe 
the resurrection is plausible, is genuine, is authentic, was bodily, was physical, is a real hope and a rational thing to believe for the student of history and for the person who values philosophical integrity and historical integrity. Something incredible beyond a shadow of a doubt happened in the mid-30s AD with Jesus. Something that has caused the growth of the largest religion the world has ever known and produced the most famous person the world has ever known. I've yet to see an explanation for that fame, for the spread of the church, etc., that is better than the one offered by the Bible. That is, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Thanks for listening. Next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about John 3.16. We've got a weird one about aliens coming up, so stay tuned for that. 